This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. Today is May 30th, 2023. My name is Braden Dennis, as always, joined by the resplendent Simon Belanger. I encourage you not to look up the definition of that word because I don't know what it means. Uh, sir, we have great topics here on the pod. We are talking about the thing that everyone else is quickly talking about, which is AI and the NVIDIA report. It officially hit $1 trillion in market cap. We're going to talk about our thoughts and our hot takes around the business moving forward here. And then you're going to round it out with the Canadian banks. Uh, some of them reported earnings recently. But my question for you uh, that I want to know and my, the question that many of the listeners want to know, what was your first job? Um, so my first job would have been with uh, Pizza Pizza. So I worked at uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the uh, Briar, so the Curling Briar in Ottawa. It was at the Civic Center that's now like kind of lands down where the Red Blacks play for the CFL and the Ottawa 67s play. So for... March break, they had the briar going on and there was a little pizza pizza booth. One of my buddies, his dad was like a regional director. So we worked there. I worked the cash. I mean, it was definitely like one of the hardest like physical jobs I had because it was, I think, 12 hours a day and you were on your feet the whole day. You had like 15 minutes to, <laughs> to eat and then you'd get back at it. I remember like I was kind of gassed after that. And then I guess I did a good job because they asked me to work at uh, one of their call centers uh, that took orders because I was bilingual. So could take calls in French and English. So, ah, yeah. yeah, that's a good call. $8 an hour, the- which was high at the time. Oh, baby. Yeah. I was like oh baby dollar and a half higher than minimum wage i think so i was pretty At pretty pumped yeah oh wow so you've been killing it since day one dude some of those jobs you have to stand yeah for like 12 hours dude it, it's so taxing it really is my first job was a bag boy and yeah you're standing for like eight straight hours not 12 hours but uh bagging people's groceries that's uh <laughs> It doesn't get any more uh, first job grind than bagging groceries, but I did get promoted to cashier the next year, which there was, <laughs> oh baby, <laughs> oh baby. All right, let's get into it. NVIDIA reported, as of today, they did hit that exclusive trillionaire club uh, that is just a few companies that live there. And NVIDIA is now one of them, this historic run up on the stock. Uh, you know, sure, the earnings were impressive, but we're going to we're going to break that down and then think about is this is this fact or fiction? Or is this hype or bubble? Uh, we'll have all our hot takes right yeah. here. It's actually just out of the club now. It's like nine ninety, so it, it's well, <laughs> losers. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Nvidia has been on a tear, of course, and we had talked about how it looked 
pretty expensive as a stock. And I think that was true and is still true right now, even despite them having a blowout earnings uh, call and, you know, numbers were extremely good. The stock was up 25% and gained a whopping $184 billion market cap in one day last week. And it continued doing well this week, I think mostly because of Jensen Huang, who actually, I think, did a two-hour presentation and unveiled a bunch of different things, which got even people more excited about NVIDIA. Haven't had the chance to look at that, but uh, I heard kind of the big themes. I think there was some robotics and different things uh, that would be uh, kind of AI-related. Had you had a chance to, to listen to it or just kind of see the big themes? I saw a clip on Twitter somewhere of him showing the applications for video games in his, oh, in yeah. his keynote because yeah, they're you know their history is is deep rooted in gaming yeah, of, course, of course with these yeah. with these with these GPUs and I've always had a vision. Remember those games uh, like uh, Skyrim and uh, you know those like large open world games yeah oh yeah skyrim oblivion okay so i always had a vision for those games as a kid that is basically playing out exactly what jensen demoed which is when you talk to the characters in those games like the the npcs you have like three or four things that you can interact with them and that was game changing that it's not just like a direct sequence it's like you can pick four things and they'll have defined response depending on which way you want to steer the conversation and he's saying now you can just converse in natural language though any way you wish and those players will be trained with backstories and respond virtual art artificial like intelligence instead of just defined scripts and this is like a vision i always had for video games and to see it kind of happening right now is pretty cool. There, there was lots of cool stuff that he highlighted, I think. Yeah, I bet you uh, Mark Zuckerberg was salivating with his metaverse in the background. Like, ooh, this is going to be great for our products in the metaverse. Totally. And I think that that's, that's what gets people kind of excited is it's like it becomes more and more real. Uh, and an important part of that is language and, and conversing with not real beings via human language is like kind of groundbreaking there. So yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure he liked that one too. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. And now I'll just do a quick overview of the earnings, just kind of the, the main points. And then we'll have a more thorough discussion on, you know, where we think, AI stocks are going, some of the the impacts, other businesses that are being, you know, just pulled by this as well. So for NVIDIA, revenues came in at $7.2 billion, which was about 10% more than the market was expecting. Data center revenues were up 18% to $4.2 billion versus the last quarter. They said that GPU demand was driven by cloud vendors and large consumer internet companies. The demand was driven by AI, which requires significantly more computing power than we're used to, and the traditional internet, in air quotes, I would say. Um, and GPU is definitely well positioned to do that compared to the more traditional CPU. Gaming revenues was down 38% year over year, but was up 22% versus last quarter. They generated $2.6 billion in free cash flow for the quarter, which is more than double of what they did last year. And it was up 53% quarter over quarter. 
The guidance is what really got the markets excited. So they are expecting sales of 11 billion this upcoming quarter. So then the one they're currently in, which is more than 50% higher than what the market was expecting. And that's really, I think, the one of the big parts where that drove the stock up 25%. But I think the broader conversation about AI in general and getting people excited about it, obviously, it's it's everywhere, right? If you look, I mean, even non-financial websites are talking about it. So I think it's a, it's a whole bunch of different things, but I'll let, let you give your take and then uh, I'll probably chime in as you uh, give your perspective too. Yeah, that, that guidance blowout was like what kind of really set the stock to the, to the stratosphere, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And, 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 and rightfully so, but I, I think that I'm going to do my best here. I have some prepared stuff. I'm going to do my best to have a kind of balanced take on this business here and and importantly, the stock, because this is an investing podcast. So look, NVIDIA is, is certainly the real deal. They deserve a lot of credit here. And I have quite a lot of thoughts. Uh, so prepare. So just jump in as you wish. But I could take this a variety of ways and I'll try to touch on them kind of sequentially here, which is the demand for GPUs in their data center business is going to be explosive. And, you know, they've guided that up to 11 billion from what, like seven the market was expecting. So like that's, that's a huge beat. And the word on the street is that these AI companies are lining up out the door to get their hands on these advanced, most advanced chips, aka GPUs. And as a result, NVIDIA has immense pricing power. And to kind of see their pivot, you mentioned the gaming business there. No one cares anymore because this is now a B2B infrastructure play on the next era of computing. And so artificial intelligence generally requires very intense compute and they need GPUs over CPUs because GPUs can perform thousands of operations at once. This is largely due to it being operated with way more cores than a CPU. And fundamentally, the the easy explanation is it operates in parallel versus in series. So the same way electric circuits do. And rather than having to complete one operation of compute and then move to the next operation of compute like a traditional CPU chip, GPUs break the tasks into thousands of smaller tasks and operate them all at once in parallel. And they can compute thousands of operations simultaneously. And so this drives a fundamental advantage in this new computing age while while CPUs are still going to be very important machine learning in and deep learning in particular, like the two categories of artificial intelligence, become extremely important to the masses in terms of mainstream adoption. The demand for these chips is, is clearly off off the off the page, if you will. And so this is what has in my mind defined 2023. When we look back in in 30 years and we'll say you know, what was this time about in human history? And it'll be the first time widespread adoption 
of artificial intelligence starts to creep into daily life, both professionally and personally. Is that, would you, would you agree? I mean, ChatGPT came out in November of last year, but like it wasn't till everyone had, uh, you know, had heard of it until probably maybe February. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would think so. I think that makes sense. Yeah. And so there are, uh, you know, distinct inflection points in technology and, 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 and it's an adoption in both businesses and people using it in their personal life. And this is kind of no doubt where we are here in the boom. So NVIDIA and Jensen Huang didn't actually invent GPUs, but they brought the first commercially viable available GPU to market with the GeForce 256 and largely ever since. And that was in 1999, I believe. Yeah, there there were a couple other competitors at the time. So I remember because I used to game in my early teens and okay, I bought yeah. some of those GPUs because back then, right, if you had like just a basic stand, like not an integrated, oh, actually, I think most computers didn't have integrated GPUs. So it was either, no. you know, your processor was running the graphics or you had a separate gpu and at the time there was ati which i i'm not sure if it was a canadian company or not but they got eventually bought by amd and then there was also 3d effects that had voodoo uh these video cards that were quite popular and i think they went into bankruptcy and i'm pretty sure nvidia actually bought the assets interesting okay so yeah there were other, they didn't invent, they, they, they sometimes get coined with op, like first inventing it, but it's not the case. It's more so just the adoption of They like could have, this. yeah, but it was definitely the G-Force was one of the big ones at the time. It was like yeah. three players and now it's more down to two, I would say, yeah. With AMD, would you say? Yeah. Yeah. So largely ever since they've been, kind of the leaders here uh, since the GeForce 256 came out in 99. And I'll take my technologist hat off now and put my investor hat on, which is probably more relevant here. And the day we recorded last week before their earnings report. Our timing was good. (laughs) We said the stock was frothy and very expensive and everything needs to go perfect for it to work. And then it proceeded to bounce 25% up after hours. And and my my stance remains exactly the same because I know that this is everything that I've just stated is knowledge prior to their earnings report that there's going to be a huge category winner here in artificial intelligence. But it's trading at 80 times next year's EBITDA. Like that's next year's. It's well over a hundred uh, on this year's, and so the business is projected to grow immensely over the next few years, and it probably will, especially on that data center segment. Uh, we can ex- expect that to happen. But my two main concerns here are: one, this industry has distinct bottlenecks in foundry capacity in meeting demand. There's a reason there's a line out the door to get these GPUs today because they can't make them fast enough. And my concern here is is today that 
that is kind of outside of NVIDIA's circle of control. They're saying, on they said on the call, that they're going to be able to meet all the demand in second half 2023. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Like, I don't really see them lying about that. Of course, they're closer to this than me, That, but that goes without saying. But there are two critical businesses among many that sit here in their value chain, ASML and TSMC, that we talk about all the time. ASML is the lithography required uh, to build the foundry capacity that Taiwan Semiconductor actually makes all of NVIDIA's chips today. They are the ones that actually manufacture NVIDIA's GPUs. Not to mention there's other players in here like Equinix who are more in demand for for GPU shelf space. You know, these are real estate businesses that sell space, power, and interconnectivity. And there's a lot of demand for space and power for these GPUs. So where I'm going with this is that there's businesses that are clear beneficiaries from this over the next era of computing that are trading at more reasonable multiples that are not ticker NVDA. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I don't have ton of pure exposure to AI, so I don't own an NVIDIA. Maybe I kind of own it through some of my index funds, but I don't own it outright. And that's how I get most of my exposure is I have a pretty decent allocation to Equinix. I have ASML too. And one thing that I'm looking at, um, probably more ASML that I'm kind of keeping an eye well, you on. Well, Microsoft and ASML. Well, yeah, yeah. Right? Microsoft, Google as well. Uh, they're smaller positions for me. Uh, but one thing I'm kind of looking at, especially ASML, I'm thinking, you know, if it gets real frothy, I'm not against, I know I invest long term, but having learned my lessons from 2021 and things getting really out of hand, um, if valuations just become all out of whack, I'm not against, you know, trimming a position or something like that. Because at the end of the day, I think time and time again, we've seen it, whether it was 2021, whether it was 1999, 2000 with the tech boom. You know, when there's a lot of hype like that, you know, it's not a matter if, it's a matter of when valuations do come down. That's right. Uh, number two is NVIDIA is a chip designer and they deserve the respect in being the de facto game in town for the most advanced GPU that the market clearly wants. That's That, that goes without saying. Absolutely hats off, you know, just pure dominance at, at the moment. And the designer business fundamentally is quite good. You know, very high returns on in, uh, incremental capital, excellent margins, CapEx not required, like the foundry, you know, foundry capacity and the ASMLs have those huge CapEx. And you know, not to mention the ridiculously complex supply chains to deal with. But it's also the Achilles heel versus the design agnostic model like ASML and TSMC. If there's anything you learned from that chip war book, it's that the best model is actually the agnostic model versus the integrated foundry and designer like Intel, right? Is oh, that, yeah. That's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Maybe it'll change and 15, 20 years ago, uh, you could have made an argument that it was not the case uh, maybe more 20 years ago. But now clearly, you know, the agnostics is the best way to do it. Uh, Intel is betting that it's not and that's what they're betting to turn around on. Um, 
I guess I'll see. I do hope they succeed. Uh, but you can bet with what's happening right now with NVIDIA. I think AMD, which has seen its, you know, its share increase quite a bit since NVIDIA has released, uh, you know, its blowout quarter kind of being lifted, like most of these kind of AI plays. I mean, I'm not super familiar with AMD, but I'm going to go on a limb and say that management is probably going to be directing a lot of resources to their GPU design business because AMD is the other big player, but they're a bit behind NVIDIA in terms of the highest end chips. So they compete, actually, I think from what I saw, they compete quite well on the gaming side. But, you know, to be able to compete on the AI side, I think they're a bit behind so I would not be surprised if they start pouring a lot of capital to try and get some market share away from NVIDIA. So, I, yeah, and I think that's one thing that we're going to see is, you know, you have companies with very cheap, uh, very deep pockets that are chip designers. They may not be GPU chip designers, but they certainly have the resources, I think, to give NVIDIA a run for their money. And I'm thinking about, you know, Apple, Meta here, like the large companies that, you know, we're familiar with, the big tech, they're all designing their own chips now. Yeah, that's right. And that 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 is where I'm going with this. Okay. Is that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's where I'm going with this is that today there's not a lot of competition uh, right now. But as we saw with Apple get into the chip designer arena and eat Intel's lunch, Microsoft announcing that they're taking this very seriously on their earnings call, they're working on something. Meta saying, hey, from our opinion, we already have the best large language model. We have the best supercomputer in the world. And it's likely going to have designs up against NVIDIA as well in the GPU space. And if there's one thing that I've learned over the last two years is the design agnostic model came out as a winner and a place that I want to situate myself personally. But look, th this thing may continue to rip higher and higher and it is in full momentum territory. So momentum's a hell of a drug. I don't expect this business to trade on real fundamentals for a while for here now out, but I'm definitely kicking myself as well for saying on another podcast and this podcast months ago that it's NVIDIA is a clear-cut winner in terms of winning market shares, the infrastructure, what the GPUs and the chips, that the demand for chips that is going to be required here, and then watch it rise like 500 million market cap since. Uh, but such is life, you can't own all of them. So I hope that this is somewhat of a balanced approach on clearly what is the hottest stock in the market today. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is I actually was debating uh, when, you know, Buffett came out and said they sold all their uh, TSMC position. I actually thought the stock was looking pretty attractive and was, I think, the mid 80s in terms of price. Now it's over 100. Like I and the PE and the price of free cash flow was pretty attractive. What I find interesting is people are completely forgetting about TSMC here in terms of, you know, there's still some geopolitical risk, which, you know, TSMC produces 90% of the world's most advanced chip and they produce them, most of them in Taiwan. So it's like people are completely forgetting about the whole China-US <laughs> situation with NVIDIA. It's like almost NVIDIA is completely immune to that, but it's a big risk for TSMC, which is, I don't know. It's That's it, why it, I think it's, it's like... <laughs> It's like when people don't say that the uh, 
this isn't a risk for Apple. It's like, you know, it's like when people bid up Apple, but then they'll say, oh, there's huge geopolitical risks with Taiwan Semiconductor. It's like, who's making the... Yeah. There's a a clear bottleneck here that's involved and it all goes through Taiwan and China uh, for a business like Apple. And there, there just seems to be some businesses that get a pass that has no logic. And this is the exact same thing where it's like, there sure is geopolitical concerns, and that risk is always going to play into the premium that Taiwan Semiconductor trades at for until until that's not a concern anymore. But last time I checked, they manufacture every single Nvidia chip, so you know it's uh, you can't have one without the other. Yeah, and uh, the you know obviously the Americans are trying to onshore some of that production, so they're not as reliant and as you know exposed. The Arizona to, plant. Yeah, exactly, Arizona. Um, so there's also I think the Intel Brookfield partnership as well. So there's definitely yeah. uh, you know some capital being there, but again. This we won't see fully the extent of those investment until probably two three years from now. So there's still some near term uh, risk, and even if you look at friend shoring, right? So friend shoring is similar to onshoring. It's just aligning, you know, making sure that certain products are available with countries that you align with geopolitically. So you know, friend shoring for the U.S. could be, you know, Western Europe. Canada, Mexico, these type, ensuring that these countries also have the capacity so the U.S. can depend on them. Uh, but that's going to it's not going to happen overnight because these are complex, you know, factories to build. Very complex. And ASML is as a big backlog. And other players. Last time I checked, they can only make so many ultraviolet lithography machines every year. Exactly. So I think, I don't know, I just find it a bit funny. And I think that's probably where the the mania is the most obvious is people are almost like disregarding this whole risk with NVIDIA while still pricing it in for TSMC, which (laughs) anyways, that's probably the best example right there. So... ASML, this is their last four quarters of EUV units that they made. They made 12 in June 22 quarter, 12 in September 22 quarter, 13 in December, and 17, uh, their highest ever, in uh, April 23 quarter of EUV units shipped. Uh, So this is the ultraviolet lithography machines required to make the most advanced uh, what, like, I guess nine or seven nanometer yeah, chips. Yeah, I think it's lower. I think now, I mean, I, I may be wrong, but I think they're, they they can go as low as three now. Three nanometer, holy shit. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> so like, we're beating it. Like, we've, we've, we've said this so many times. There's a clear select businesses that sit in the bottleneck of this industry, and uh, ASML is certainly one of them. So, yeah, it, it's weird how... The market has just decided physics, you know, the laws of supply chains don't apply here. I, I don't really know how it's all going to play out, but I, I think that you're you're betting on perfection. It's priced like absolute perfection here, and I don't know how that works out for people. Yeah, and don't get us wrong. Clearly, NVIDIA will be a big benefactor, but yes. being a big benefactor and having a huge tailwind versus 
the expectations priced into the stock, um, that's really what you have to look at. And I think for people interested in the name, I would just say, look, try to build a mental framework in terms of various outcomes that could happen with that investment and NVIDIA and probability for each. And, you know, it's not perfect. You kind of do your research, you try to assign probabilities, and then you come out with an input and a potential value based on these all all of these probability. And I'm going to go on a limb and say that it's probably not as high as it is right now. <laughs> if you're being reasonable in your assumptions. Yeah, I think that, that is a very fair take. Uh, absolutely. And look, I, I mean, I, I spent the first half of my segment praising their technological advancements and being the de facto player, commending Jensen, all the innovation and the products they've built, how they have really carved out the capabilities for us to advance artificial intelligence come from NVIDIA's work. So they, they've been a key player in the R&D here. Technologist hat off, investor hat on. How do I make money? I don't see it. Perfectly well said. Um, now I guess we'll go on to the thrilling world of banking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Boo. So uh, valuations are much better in the banking world. So I'll just say <laughs> that. <laughs> it's not trading as uh, extremely expensive. So, you know, I usually when, uh, you know, earnings come out for Canadian banks, I don't want to go through all of the earnings. So I usually pick two or three. Uh, last time I didn't pick the two biggest. So this time I will look at TD Bank and Royal Bank. And I even chose a smaller regional bank that some people, especially if you're living in the East, uh, you may never have heard of or you're not very familiar with. So that one is Canadian Western Bank. So I'll just go an overview just, uh, you know, say my thoughts on what I think is going on here as a whole. Um, and then obviously feel free to chime in, Braden. So first one, TD Bank. So net income was down 12% to $3.35 billion year over year, but more than doubled versus last quarter. However, it's important to keep in mind the numbers might seem good versus last quarter, but they had a one-time $1.6 billion settlement in Q1. So clearly, you know, that took a big chunk out of their earnings last quarter. Net income for personal and Canadian banking was down 6% versus the previous quarter. And I'm trying to do, for the most part, sequential, so just versus the previous quarter compared to year over year. Because last year, if we remember, um, it was quite different for banks. Interest rates were just a fraction of what they are right now. So I don't think it's necessarily the best idea to compare year over year. Quarter over quarter actually makes more sense, in my opinion. Net income for U.S. retail was down 11%. Net income for wealth management was up a 2%. Net income for wholesale banking was down 50%. So the, the last two here, wealth management, wholesale banking, they're actually, you know, a smaller proportion of the revenue. The big ones for TD, it's obviously Canadian banking, personal and business, and U.S. retail as well. And for those not aware, wholesale banking services are banking services that are done with large clients like banks, financial institution, governments, large corporation. So not you and I, Braden, I were not yet considered uh, in the wholesale banking uh, discussion. Not yet, sir. Yeah. Not yet. Yeah. One day, man. One day. One day with Stratosphere, you'll be, uh, you know, <laughs> get preferential I, I, rates. I, I bank with uh, RBC for Stratosphere and... Um, 
I pay five dollars a month in fees, so they don't. They don't. <laughs> I would even show up on their radar like I am invisible to them. One day, one day. But uh, now, where it gets really interesting here is loan loss provisions came in high again for this quarter at six hundred million. Their CT one capital ratio, which is an important ratio for banks, uh, was fifteen point three percent and actually improved year over year, but was slightly down quarter over quarter. Their net interest margin, another thing that uh, people should really look at, was down three basis points to uh, one point seventy six percent, and it looked like it peak at 1.81 so it's been trending down uh the last two quarter not by a lot the last thing that i forgot to check and i wish i had was just the the status of their deposits but uh, just going on what i've seen the headlines i don't think there's too much of a change here but uh, i can always touch back on that in a future episode so overall, I mean, they decided to not increase their dividend, although they had done so at the beginning of the year. It's probably a smart move. The loan loss provision, I was reading an article where it may seem like a lot, but in terms of total loans for Canadian banks, the amount of money they're putting aside for loan loss provisions are actually not very high. So whether, I don't know exactly what that means. Are they being too, you know, optimistic or is still you know is it the right amount i'm not quite sure but i think it's just an interesting kind of nuance here to to put now royal bank they increased their quarterly dividend by two percent to a dollar 35 per share net income was down 14 percent year over year but was up 13 percent versus uh the previous quarter personal and commercial bank uh banking Net income decreased 10% versus last quarter. Wealth management net income was down 13%. Insurance net income decreased 6%. And capital markets net income decreased 23%. This was all versus the previous quarter, of course. And CET1 ratio was 13.7%, up 100 basis points from last quarter. Again, same thing as TD. They put six, $600 million for loan loss provisions. And net interest margins was up 5 basis points to a 1.53% compared to last quarter. And that's up 7 basis points if we compare to last year. So a small... I mean, for both TD and Royal Bank, I would say, you know, it was an okay quarter. Clearly, they're putting more money towards loan loss provisions. And for those who are not aware, it's basically a bank putting aside money uh, in case there's people with or people or businesses who they have loans with that are not going to be paying in the future. So. I expect, and from what I've read, and especially with rising rates, you'll probably keep seeing that from Canadian banks in quarters to come. It'll just be interesting to keep an eye on the amounts if they continue increasing quarter over quarter. Any comments for the two big Canadian banks? I don't have any thoughts, uh, particularly on TD or, or RBC, beyond what you've outlined here. My general observation from reading bank earnings reports since what I'd say this quarter and maybe the previous quarter. I think I'd say this this one and last one was it's like watching businesses that have been operating a certain way for so long in an, in an environment that has been that way for more than a decade have to 
reinvent themselves. So not, not reinvent themselves, but learn how to operate in a different environment and watching that come out both in the commentary and in the numbers. Because since 08, basically you had this like super low decreasing all the way to basically zero in 2020 interest rate environment to a regime shift very quickly, the Fed acting unilaterally, and them just like their first two, three quarters of this is us figuring it out. That's that's how I've read these earnings reports so far. And I actually think that these ones have been pretty solid, um, you know, compared to the regional banks in the U.S. I mean, seems seems quite solid, but I, I, I don't have any uh, any thoughts beyond that. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. And, you know, I think we have to probably wait and see. I, I That's how I'm seeing things in the next couple of years, because usually, you know, financial or banking crisis, they don't happen all at once. Um, you know, I'm listening to uh, Navigating Big Debt Cycles right now by Ray Dalio. And one of the things when he goes through these big debt crises is that, you know, they can take a year or two for all the dominoes to fall, uh, sometimes even a bit more time. Even if we're looking back at 2008, 2009, it happened over, I think it was almost a year and a half, two years span for things to kind of be resolved. But, you know, took definitely some more time. And I know some people are thinking, oh, banks are looking pretty attractive here. And I would say just be careful. They may be. But for the most part, if you're looking at P-E ratio price to book, you're looking at the, you know, trailing 12 months. And, you know, especially if we're seeing a slowdown, um, earnings will probably come down if they're putting more and more money for loan loss provisions. Chances are that going forward, earnings will keep going down. So that P ratio is not super reflective of what's actually going to happen. And the last thing here for big banks is that rising interest rate, there's a common perception that it's good for banks because it increases your interest margin. And I would say that can be true. But it's also, I think right now what they're seeing, especially in the U.S., and it seems like maybe it's starting to translate in Canada, is the big banks have traditionally not increased the interest that they give on deposits as quickly as, you know, the interest that they charge on loans. So that would expand their interest margins logically. But now more and more... I think customers are starting to look for other places to get interest on their money because they're saying, okay, well, if I'm going to pay my you know, mortgage at five and a half, six percent, I might as well get some money on the money that I have in cash at the bank. And I think customers are starting to shop around, which will probably force the big banks to offer better rates and therefore pressure decrease their net interest margin. Yeah, there's competition for deposits. Exactly, and, and not to mention when you have a rising rate environment. Look at RBC's business lines. Look how big of a portion of their net income is from wealth management and capital markets, which are down both sequentially thirteen percent and twenty three percent, respectively. So, my tip here is that a lot of new Canadian investors, retail investors, have seen how well the banks have performed historically. 
which is very legit. They've seen the kind of, you know, yield on cost that they can generate from, from growing that dividend over time. And they've seen, you know, their parents get extremely wealthy from bank stocks and real estate. And, and that's, that's all fine. But we're talking about some of the most complex businesses in the world. Uh, from a, an accounting perspective, the different segments, how it relates to the macro economy. And I see people blindly owning them. You have to know what you own. And these are some of, especially these big ones that have, you know, not just not just personal banking, but it's also commercial, wealth management, insurance, capital markets, and, and whatever long, long list that, that might be in there. These are very complex, large enterprises that are not easily understood by most people, including me. So that's, that's one thing to think about. Yeah. And I would like, look, we don't have any reason to believe that Canadian banks are that's any right. yeah. sort of trouble or yeah, there's don't, any don't contagion. Don't hear what we're not saying. Yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm actually not bearish on these companies at all, like at all, really. Yeah, you might I mean, be more. I, you, you, I think I, you I are. I probably but. am more. Yeah, I probably yeah. am more because I think there is just there's just things we still haven't seen. I think that may uh, break in the financial markets because of those rapid interest rate increases. And from the sound of it, central banks, at least Canada and U.S., could potentially uh, keep raising rates because they're not seeing inflation come down as quickly as they want. And the one thing, you know, people might say, well, okay, well, TD and Royal Bank, they're, you know, they're GSIP banks, they're too big to fail. And, you know, you can make a case that all major Canadian banks are too big to fail, which, you know, I certainly agree. I obviously have there was something the government would intervene. But what happens when the government intervenes, shareholders will often be wiped out. So just something to keep in mind. I'm not saying, again, that it's this is a likely scenario, whatnot, but just be aware that, you know, I think, you know, it's probably relatively safe. But to think that they're not without risk, which unfortunately, I think a lot of Canadians think that the Canadian banks are without risk. That's simply not true. It's just not true. We have a global financial system and it is interconnected. It may not, you know, we may not be seeing the impacts of the regional banks in Canada right now. And I know people are pointing out to the financial crisis 2008, 2009. It's not the same thing. And it's not because it didn't happen then that it won't happen now. So I'm just trying to, you know, make sure you're aware of some potential risk. Doesn't mean that they'll happen, but you're aware of them. I think that that's a fair call out. You know, you got to know what you own. And exactly. a lot of people own banks without deeply understanding them because they're super complicated. Like there's, yeah. there's no other way to describe it. Like this is, it's mm-hmm. not, it, it's not as easy to understand as Nike selling more shoes this year than last year means business equals good, right? Like, it's it's more complicated than that. Yeah, exactly. And now I'll finish off quickly with the Canadian uh, Western Bank, ticker CWB.TO, and obviously listed in Toronto. So they're primarily located in the West. Um, they do have an online um, option that's available for Ontario. And I think they, you know, they have some operations in Ontario, but it's primarily, I think, uh, Alberta and um 
British Columbia here. So they increased their dividend by 3%. Net income was 70 million, which was down 25% versus last quarter and down 6% year over year. Their CT1 ratio was 20 uh, 20 basis point higher to 9.3%. They had provision for credit losses or same thing as loan loss provisions here of 10 million, which is slightly less than last year, and net interest margin of 2.26%, which has steadily gone down since Q1 of 2022. And a big difference between Canadian Western Bank and TD and Royal Bank, for example, is their primary a traditional bank. So they, you know, you deposit your money, businesses deposit their money, they loan out money uh, for different different type of you know, products, um, but they don't really, they don't have a big wealth management business or anything like that. So it's more of a traditional bank. But what is clear here is, I mean, they're also feeling the pinch in terms of provision for uh, credit losses or loan loss provision. So uh, just an interesting one. I think the dividend is pretty, pretty high for this one as well. Thanks for listening to today's show. Uh, It's been a, uh, all over the map conversation about yeah. uh, this, the sexy AI to the uh, you know traditional Canadian banks that uh, you know despite their their challenges with banks globally, Canadian banks have traditionally got the job done. But you know, I think you raised some some good points. We appreciate you listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast on your podcast player. It's called Follow on Spotify, and it's called <laughs> Subscribe yeah, on, <laughs> on Apple, Apple? Podcasts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Subscribe question mark uh, on Apple Podcasts, and uh, it's it's really convenient because I'm I'm a Spotify personal uh, user personally, and the podcast that I'm not subscribed to, I end up not listening to them when I'm in a jam. Like you know, I'm I'm getting in the car. And I have to load up the ones I'm subscribed to because they're all in one place, and uh, we'll we'll be slotted right in there if you're subscribed. So then you you know you always get the show when you're in a pinch, when you need to put something on quick. The pod will be there for you. We are here Mondays and Thursdays. We thank you very much. If you want to support the show, you can go to jointci.com where you see our portfolio disclosures and this podcast on video. You can see two guys that are built for podcasting the radio. On video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, some uh, Lululemon. Do you have a Lulu on? That's right. Yeah. Um, if everyone on the oh, podcast okay. wants to see my boxers, then, then okay. yes. But you, you uh, have no, a hidden piece. Yeah. Not, uh, not up top right now. This is uh, Uniqlo, you know, Uniqlo. Nope, but uh, okay. You don't? <laughs> no, oh. I don't. It's good for basics. Uh, okay. okay. It's, it's Japanese, right? Uniqlo. It's Japanese, Japanese casual wear. Oh, it's it's publicly traded. Oh wow! Ooh, stock on our radar. <laughs> oh wait, maybe it's not. Oh no, it is. It's it's trading. It trades under uh, fast retailing co. Okay, see, it's fast fast fashion. Okay. Clearly, is a public Japanese multinational holding. Its primary subsidy subsidiary is Uniqlo. Okay, so a Japanese H and M. That's basically what it is. Yes, it's a Japanese H and M. That's 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 the perfect description of it. Except the quality is it's better. Still, okay. it's still fast fashion, but it's not 
wear it three times and it looks like it's been worn 500 times. Yeah. (laughs) It's mediumly fast fashion. It's like me as a sprinter, you know, like I'm, I'm pretty fast because I was like a runner, but I'm rusty. So I'm like me moderately fast fashion is uh Uniqlo. Dude, this stock's been a monster. Yeah, I'm not. I don't think H and M's publicly traded. I know it's Swedish. Yeah, it um, is. Isn't they're it? everywhere. Is it? H and M's publicly traded. At one point, it was one of the largest European stocks. Shout the, out yeah. to our probably our five Swedish listeners. But it is publicly traded. H and M is publicly okay. Traded. Okay. It peaked in 2015, and it's been uh, a rough stock to own since. But Uniqlo. Has clearly taken, uh, here I'm putting it on the screen here. It has clearly taken over uh, its position. Uniqlo stock is up like 2,000% since 08. You heard it for here first. It trades under tick, ticker 9983 on the Tokyo Stock Exchange. There you go. Stocks on her radar <laughs> thrown in there, presented by our friends at EQ Bank. It is Fast Retailing Co. LTD, the owner of Uniqlo. We'll see you in a few days. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simon may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.